0: Our God and Father, we mingle praise with prayer at the opening of this little gathering. For we have much to thank Thee for, even the things to do with our present pilgrimage, and then for the glorious hereafter. We also ask Thee for grace, that we may adorn this doctrine, God our Saviour in all things, that although we cannot be saved by our works or by our walk, we do ask Thee that as a result of Thy grace and the gift of Thy beloved Son and the wonder of all our standing in Him, we may seek to adorn that doctrine and walk worthy of this calling. To that end we ask Thee that Thou wilt let Thy light shine upon the sacred page tonight, so that as we sit at Thy feet and hear what thou hast written for our learning, the spirit who indicted these words may write them afresh on the tablets of our hearts, that we may not merely be those who can quote chapter and verse, but those who seek to live chapter and verse, that it shall be turned from letters on a printed page to that which is be the part and parcel of our daily witness. We remember those who from time to time gather with us and many reasons are keeping them aside and we know of some who are in distress because of dear ones. And there are others who would be here but they are in beds of sickness. And we think of others of whom we do not know the reason but bless thee they cannot be beyond thy care and thy watchful care over them we ask as if we ask it for ourselves. We pray thee too to bless the messages that go forth from this place on these Wednesday evenings to the folks who should be listening in Wisconsin, to the tape recording a uh, witness to the wonder of this glorious calling that we rejoice in this chapel. We are very conscious of our unworthiness for so high a position, but we are very conscious that no worthiness of ours could ever make us accepted. We bless thee when accepted in the Beloved. And we ask thee that this evening and every evening, that any message printed, recorded, or spoken shall always point away from self to Christ, who is the beginning and the ending, the Amen, the One in whom all blessings are concentrated, and without whom No blessing is possible. Once again, we put ourselves into thy keeping for this night. Pray that thou will bless the hour we spend together with thine open book and blessing thee that we are still able to have an open book. There are many who envy us already. Hear us in these things and keep us in thy peace. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number one of a series entitled Spotlight Studies. Now, a word of explanation seems necessary for such a title. It is not everyone who is able to attend a long session of recordings that may cover many weeks, and consequently some expositions may never be attended. What I hope to do in this series is to pick out some outstanding passages from books, epistles, prophecies, what not, and hope that as a consequence of the study of that spotlight passage, those of you who are listening may be prompted to adopt the Berean attitude to search and see what lies on either side. And so... It's a sort of an endeavour to trap you into searching the Scriptures for yourselves if you're not always able to spare the time to attend, tape recordings that occupy weeks and weeks to get through the subject. Spotlight studies. We open this evening with a spotlight study, as far as you can speak like that, of such a passage, of Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter, is the quintessence, and summing of this glorious epistle, and not only of this epistle, but of practically the whole of Paul's ministry, apart from the revelation of the dispensation of the secret, which does not fall under the heading of doctrine, but dispensational truth. Now, when we had, I had opportunity of speaking at these meetings before, I was rather dealing with a few passages in Galatians. And the epistle to the Galatians is an epistle written red hot to defend the truth against all odds of of this uh, central teaching of the apostle, justification by faith. But even there, in that uh, first chapter, when the Apostle is speaking to these Galatians, he said, when it pleased God, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him. So, however much he was disturbed at the way in which these folks were being sort of sidetracked, he still emphasised the fact that it was the Son of God at the commencement, and it was the Son of God that filled his ministry. And it may be of interest to you to know that in the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul, which give us the great Revelation of the mystery, the word, the title, Son of God, comes only once. Now sometimes the scripture emphasizes a, t- a teaching by repetition. And sometimes it emphasizes it by one solitary passage. And the solitary passage is in the unity of a faith, which is the acknowledgement of the Son of God. And there it stands. And I'm saying that because this evening we're looking at Romans the 8th chapter rather as a whole and you will discover that it is like a string threaded with beads and every bead on the, on the string contains the reference to the sun. And uh, I think we will commence by noticing that feature straight away. If you care to make a mental note or even a pencil note I will give you the first and last references and the second and the last but one, you know, that work out this little pattern and you will then discover that Romans 8 has a structure which revolves round the occurrences of reference to the word "hoios," the Greek word for sun. Now, verses 1 to 4 is letter A. 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son. I'll stop there. That's the point. The answer is not a long drawn out doctrinal statement, but a personal. The sending of his own son. Now, the the last section is verse 31 to 39. And I, I just read verse 31 and 32. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son? But did he put it up for us all? How should he not with him also freely give us all things? So Romans 8 emphasizes his son at the beginning, his son at the end. One that was sent, a one that was spared not. He spared not his own son. Come back to the next member. Verses 5 to 15. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And not, not reading the whole section right through, we read uh, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So we have the sons of God. We have the Son of God in the first and last flex, The sons of God led by the Spirit. Now, shall we look at 29 and 30? 29 and 30. This balance is 5 and 15. A verse, um, yes, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. They are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And the leading of the Spirit of God has the goal in front, that they may be conformed to his image. It will only be partial in this life, but it's leading and pointing to that which is a part of our blessed hope. So now we have his Son at the beginning and end, we have led and con- conformed to his Son in the other two members. Now, 15 to 17, we read, 15 to 17, look at verse 16, oh, verse, verse 15, for we have not received the spirit of bondage against the fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we have children of God in one verse and the word adoption in the other and the word adoption contains the word son. As I said earlier, the Greek word for a son is hwios and the Greek word for adoption is hwiosesia and the composition of the word is to place a person as a son. Well, that's not being born, that's being placed in position. Go back to the Old Testament. Jacob had 12 sons, but he placed Joseph as the firstborn with dignity. He received the, the adoption, as it were, the coat of many colours, although well, he was a long way down the list. So there we have the word adoption. Now in um, 22 to 28, 22 to 28, we have. Uh, let me just. Oh, verse 23 will be enough. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, namely, the redemption of our body. So the adoption comes twice and in exactly the right spot. And then, 17 to 21, we have the summing up, the goal. Let's read that, 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature and possibly creation waiteth. What for? The manifestation of the sons of God. So there we have seven sections in this Romans 8. The first and last stress his son. Then we have led by the Spirit or conformed to his image. We have the Spirit itself mentioned twice in connection with adoption. And then we have the goal, the manifestation of the sons of God. And we must meet that, of course, always with the manifestation of the glory of the Son of God in the coming of Christ as revealed in the epistle to the Colossians and elsewhere. Well, that's an endeavour to sketch out, just in front of you, the fact that this chapter has got that composition and emphasises and brings it to our notice so that we cannot avoid it, that the Son of God and Sonship is the goal, as it's the basis of all our hopes. Well, now let's notice another feature. Chapter 8 begins with this. There is therefore now no condemnation. The word therefore is a logical particle. And of all the writers in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses these logical particles most. You must never, as it were, slip by them. But notice the strange fact. He says in verse 24 of the preceding chapter, All wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with a mind I myself serve the law of God, and with the flesh the law of sin, there is therefore. There is therefore. How does it arise logically? Well, I think we must look a little bit further. Can we look further by turning back? Well, at least we'll try to. Romans, the fifth chapter, which we partly read as our lesson, opens this central section of Romans. Now, that's taking another thought. The outside section of Romans deals with sins, with an S on the end. And the inside section of Romans deals with sin itself. And the Apostle Paul, who may have been free from many sins after his conversion, as a decent Christian man would be, was terribly conscious of sin within. That nothing he did could stop. Nothing he did could eradicate. But he had to face it. So here we have a man who confesses of like passions or infirmities of ourselves. And so in in the, 50, in the fifth chapter, condemnation comes in upon all men. Condemnation. And chapter 8 says, there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, all the time, the Apostle, at least the Spirit of God, if, if the Apostle didn't keep it in his mind, had this, that in Adam, it's condemnation. But in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. But what about the intervening chapters? Well, they are not so much the teaching given positively by the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God anticipating objections. Now, it's all a part of Scripture, but you see, some parts of Scripture positively teach you, and some parts of Scripture express what you may have thought sometimes, and meets it. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? So, would you notice Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound? God forbid. And what's his answer? A long, drawn out rigmarole? No. Just the word dead. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That's his argument. And it's the only one. But don't you see? Because there is no condemnation of the which are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean to say they are a now a sinless lot of people walking perfectly in complete harmony with all the mind and will of God. That isn't so. This man himself confesses in this, these two chapters that when he would do good, evil was present with Oh, wretched man that I am, he said. What shall I do about it? Isn't it good that that's been recorded, that even the Apostle Paul had that fight within. But it didn't alter the fact that out of Adam uh, into Christ being out of condemnation into no condemnation. And you will find in chapter 6 and 7 there are four of these objections. And they all end up by saying, God forbid. And um, in chapter 7 he takes an illustration. Know ye not brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. Did I say just now his answer was, How can you live in sin if you're dead to it? He is at he? you see. You don't accuse that woman of being an adulteress if her husband is dead. So he says, You Jewish ones with sensitive feelings about the law of Moses, Don't you think that I'm telling you that your salvation is merely because you've changed your opinions or you embraced a new doctrine? Oh, no. No, no. The law has dominion over a man as long as he liveth. But you've died with Christ. And therefore, in spite of all these evidence of frailty, there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is good news, isn't it? And so we find these objections running through these two chapters. So, having gone to that extreme, he picks it up again. There is therefore now no condemnation. Do you notice that it's now? He's not merely looking forward to the glory. He says now. You notice that there are several features where this word now is important, chapter 5. This is in verse 8. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now. Now, when we were yet sinners, no turning over new leaf, no experimenting to see whether you could be good enough, no, no, he says, while we were yet sinners, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, and so on, and again in uh chapter six twenty one uh, think I've got just a, 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 a little slip there, but I'll read that, verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now, here it is, now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So whatever is being stressed in Romans 8 is now Now in this present life, now with all our conscious failure and weakness, no idea that you can gradually throw off the old man and gradually put on the new. In Galatians he put it tersely, when he was withstanding Peter, because he was a little bit shaky with regard to some of these things, he said, so far as I'm concerned Peter, he says, I to the law and I by the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And here we have a more formal exposition of the same feature. I would suggest to you, as I said earlier, to give heed to this apostle's use of these logical terms. Therefore, for Let's get one more example because it is important. Romans the first chapter. He is explaining to them that he hasn't been staying away from Rome because he didn't like to preach the gospel he had there to those who were very much up in the world. Oh no. He said in verse 10, Now I would not have you ignorant brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you was let or hindered hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among the Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Now look, he gives his reasons. For, why is that for? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Well, why are you not ashamed of it, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But why is it the power of God? For there it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And why should we need this salvation? For the wrath of God is revealed from him. Don't you see? It's step by step. And however impassioned he may be with regard to it, and I can't conceive a man like the Apostle Paul not having very intense feelings with regard to the gospel he preached. It was there, stressed, logically, step by step. Well, now let's um, notice the way in which he commences. The first section is the um, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. We've we've stressed the fact that the answer is found in God sending his own son. And the echo of that is in the closing section when it says that God spared not his own son. And one of the things that I think we do well to remember is that the man who wrote these words by inspiration of God was brought up a Pharisee, and was brought up, as a Pharisee would, to know the Old Testament Scriptures very, very much at heart. Whether he knew their inner meaning or not is another question. But this man knew the writings of Moses and Isaiah and quotes them. And this word, spared not his own son, is the word which is used when God spoke to Abraham and said, Hold! now I know thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. That word withheld is this word, spared not. And Abraham was taken into fellowship with God to know what it cost the Father to send the Son to be the Saviour of the world. So we now have this uh, first section before us, and I want to deal with that more particularly as a section when we meet together next time. One or two things may uh, perhaps be useful uh, in the interval. First of all, there's a need to correct the reading of the authorised version. I remember being in the home of one of our friends, I'm not going to say where, but he has a tendency to be a little bit bombastic sometimes. And uh, he was at a meeting when the person who read Romans 8 omitted the words in verse 1. The words he omitted were who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Well I could quite see him, as soon as the man had finished his reading he stood up and objected. He said, you have not read the Word of God. And the man said, oh, I know what you mean. But he he was not uh, easily placated. So I said to him, I said, you've got the Companion Bible up on your mantelpiece, haven't you? Yes. And I knew he often referred to that. So I said, will you turn to Romans 8? And there it was. The note in the Companion Bible says that the best Greek text leave out the words who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, you'll find them in their right place at the end of verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so we have uh, to avoid the use of that expression in verse 1. It's not true to say there is no condemnation if you walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, none of us will ever get there, friends. That's one of those little slips, and it's quite understandable. You will find sometimes things repeated. You will find sometimes things omitted. You will find sometimes one letter substituted for another. But don't think that interferes with the inspiration of Scripture. That's only the copies. And as we've got hundreds of different copies, you can check one against the other, and there's no doubt. So here we have then the introduction of this chapter 8, which I picked out and called a Spotlight Study. Romans, the 8th chapter, going step by step, dealing with the question of condemnation, justification, glory, and ultimately ending up with those triumphant words with which the chapter ends, not only no condemnation, but no separation. I think we'll give that a hearing this evening and say, so far as this introduction is concerned, that's about as far as we shall go. Some of the friends know that um, I've still got a watch, that I don't overdo it. I'm just um, standing in the pulpit instead of perching on a stool, and I hope that as time goes on, I'll be able to give you a full account but let's look at the end of Romans eight to see where this no condemnation leads us. What an exaltion what an exalted passage it is. He says, Who shall lay anything, this is verse thirty three, to the charge of God's elect? And what's his answer? It is God that justifies you. Take that stand two friends. It's one thing for your friends to judge you, but it's another thing for God. And he's justified you. Who is he that condemn it? Again you see his answer. It is Christ that died. Yet rather that he's risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also made intercession for us? Look at the steps. He crowds him there. That's for us. Then he says, Who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? From the love of Christ. And so he says. In verse 38, I am persuaded. Has anyone ever asked you, friends, what persuasion you are? Well, here's a passage. What persuasion are you? Well, here's an answer. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth. But where are you getting to, Paul? He says, I don't know. I'm right down on the edge of things now. So he says, nor any other creature. Even though he couldn't name them. He's scanned, as it were, space. And he's looked them all over. And he says, not one shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Does he stop there? Some people do. But there's no love of God manifested or enjoyed by us, or manifested by God, apart from his Son. So it's the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we'll take that, I hope, as a beginning. These spotlight studies are not to be lengthy. These spotlight studies are to focus attention upon outstanding passages in books that we love and enjoy. And I trust that by so doing, We shall not be, as it were, cutting the book to pieces, but rather giving enough to inspire those who have the studies before them to go on searching and considering the bearing of the context.